Welcome to the CJC Weekly Bible Study, where CJC stands for Complete Jesus Christ. If your perspective of Jesus is based only on teachings from the New Testament, then your understanding is incomplete. Regarding what we often call the Old Testament, Jesus himself said, These are the very scriptures that testify about me. So won't you join us today in our study where we esteem the newer and the older testaments alike. I'm your host, Jeff Smith. And currently, we're working our way verse by verse through the first book of the Bible, Genesis. All right, today's lesson then is in Genesis, Genesis chapter 13. Genesis chapter 13. This is going to be an interesting study in this sense, and that is, I don't think we've ever covered a whole chapter before, but today we're going for it. It's actually not too long. It's 18 verses long. Chapter 13 of Genesis reads as follows. Then Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife, and all that he had, and lot with him to the south. Abram was very rich in livestock, in silver, and in gold. He went on his journey from the south as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning, between Bethel and Ai, to the place of the altar which he had made there at first. And there Abram called on the name of the Lord. Lot also, who went with Abram, had flocks and herds and tents. Now the land was not able to support them, that they might dwell together, for their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. The Canaanites and the Perizzites then dwelt in the land. So Abram said to Lot, Please, let there be no strife between you and me, and between my herdsmen and your herdsmen, for we are brethren." Is not the whole land before you? Please separate from me. If you take the left, then I will go to the right. Or if you go to the right, then I will go to the left. And Lot lifted his eyes and saw all the plain of the Jordan. And it was well watered everywhere before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt as you go toward Zoar. Then Lot chose for himself all the plain of Jordan, and Lot journeyed east, and they separated from each other. Abram dwelt in the land of Canaan, and Lot dwelt in the cities of the plain, and pitched his tent even as far as Sodom. But the men of Sodom were exceedingly wicked and sinful against the Lord. And the Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, Lift your eyes now and look from the place where you are, northward, southward, eastward and westward. For all the land which you see I give to you and your descendants forever. And I will make your descendants as the dust of the earth, so that if a man could number the dust of the earth, then your descendants also could be numbered. Arise, walk in the land through its length and its width, for I give it to you. Then Abram moved his tent and went and dwelt by the terebinth trees of Mamre, which are in Hebron, and built an altar there to the Lord." So that's chapter 13 in its entirety. A few things to point out from chapter 12, just to transition. Obviously, from chapter 12, you remember from last week's study, that was when they were in Egypt. They had gone down to Egypt, and the situation was such that as you read the account, you don't find any mention that Abram asked for the Lord's guidance. We uh, treasure Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 and 6, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make your path straight or he will direct your paths. It doesn't seem like that really happened in chapter 12. 
It doesn't seem like Abram sought the Lord's direction, uh, but uh, perhaps, perhaps he did. We just don't have any mention of it over there in that chapter. As it was over in chapter 12, where you had the mention of Abram and you had the mention of Sarai, you did not have a mention of Lot. Here in chapter 13, you have a mention of Abram and you have a mention of Lot, but you have no mention of Sarai, at least not by name. And the reason for that is because who are the main characters? In chapter 12, Lot was not a main character, so he wasn't specifically named. And here in chapter 13, uh, Sarai is not a main character, so she's not mentioned by name. So here you have in this situation in chapter 13, the end of chapter 12 was they were leaving Egypt. They were leaving Egypt with great abundance, and chapter 13 reiterates that. In chapter 13, verse 1, then Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife, and all he had. So his wife is mentioned there, but not by name. And all that he had, and Lot with him to the south. Remember we talked about the self was the Negev or Negev in some of your translations. It's a dry, barren, dusty, arid region that's uh, north of Egypt, but uh, the southernmost part of the land that God is promising to Abram. And all that he had in Lot with him to the south, Abram was very rich in livestock, in silver, and in gold. Some of the things that you'll remember about his visit to Egypt, number one, Pharaoh was blessing him materially. Pharaoh blessed Abram materially in payment, if you will, or compensation for having taken Sarai, his wife, who, to Pharaoh's credit, he didn't know it was Abram's wife. He thought it was the sister because of the ruse that they had devised. But nonetheless, Pharaoh blessed Abram because of Sarai. And so now they're leaving Egypt and they're bringing these blessings with them. You'll remember from chapter 12, verse 16, it describes some of those blessings. Perhaps you'll remember from chapter 12, some of the blessings. Chapter 12, verse 16, he treated Abram well for her sake. He had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male and female servants, female donkeys and camels. The reason why I pause there in reading female servants is because we're going to eventually get to another story where there is a particular Egyptian female servant of Abram's that becomes a prominent player in the story, and that's Hagar. So Hagar is introduced later on by name. I propose to you that the place that she actually appears first is here, kind of in between the lines. Hagar, it seems, was one of the gifts that Pharaoh had given to Abram. So that whole episode that we'll get to with the trouble with Hagar and Ishmael, it seems that perhaps that could have been avoided had Abram sought God's direction if God didn't want them to go to Egypt. But if they had called out to God, I just, I just wonder how it might have turned out different. That maybe the whole situation with Hagar and Ishmael wouldn't have been able to happen the way it did. Because if they hadn't gone to Egypt, he might not have received Hagar as an Egyptian female servant. Regarding verse 2, where it says, Abram was very rich in livestock and silver and in gold, Robert Jameson ends up describing from antiquity what it meant to be rich. Quoting Robert Jameson then, he says, An Arab sheik is considered rich who has a hundred or two hundred tents, from sixty to a hundred camels, a thousand sheep and goats respectively, and Abram, being very rich, must have far exceeded that amount of pastoral property. So it sounds like there's quite a retinue here, quite a number of material possessions, some of which he probably took down to Egypt with him, and then obviously augmented by what was given to him from Pharaoh. 
Verse 3, and he went on his journey from the south as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning between Bethel and Ai. This combination of Bethel and Ai and when he dwelt in between those areas, you'll remember that from chapter 12, verse 8. When Abram originally entered Canaan, you'll remember that the first place that was mentioned was up near Shechem. The second place was this one here between Bethel and Ai. Stuart Briscoe points out regarding this passage, he says, once failure has been recognized, it needs to be rectified. And the best way to do that is to return to basics, just as we see Abram returning here to Bethel and Ai. To return to basics, review the situation, and renew any commitments which may have been compromised. Verse 4. To the place of the altar which he had made there at first, and there Abram called on the name of the Lord. You know, we go through life and we have episodes like Abram seems to have had here. There are times when we seem to be doing well, and then there are other times where not so well. There are times when we seem to have this mountaintop experience, and other times we seem to be down in the valley of the shadow of death. And it seems like in this situation, in Abram's life, it seems like the second half of chapter 12, that was a bummer of a place to be. It seems like that was a failure, spiritually speaking. It seems that Abram needs to recoup. It seems he needs to go back to his roots, back to the place where God spoke to him, back to a place where he built an altar. You remember we talked about the altar had a permanence about it, which the tents that he lived in did not. When he left that place of Bethel and Ai, he took down his tent and moved on, but the altar remained. And so now it seems after his failure, he's going back and kind of starting over again. And you know what? It seems that God's okay with that. You and me in our lives, when we fail, when we go through things that uh, it's the valley and not the mountaintop experience, sometimes it's just beneficial to go back to a place where you remember being in communion with God. Harken back to those memories of the times when you can recall God was faithful in this instance. I was closer to God because of that. I was closer to God in that time of my life. And we should go back. What is an altar? A place of worship. We should go back and worship again. So it seems perhaps that's the reason why Abram moved up to that same spot, Bethel Ai, where the altar was, to get back where he should have been. Verse 5, chapter 13, verse 5, Lot also who went with Abram had flocks and herds and tents. So here we see that Lot seems to have quite a bit of material possessions as well. The descriptor that's missing, though, is the quality of being very rich, which we had uh, mentioned about Abram. Chapter 13, verse 6, Now the land was not able to support them that they might dwell together, for their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. We don't know exactly how many sheep or how many goats or how many tents or how many bars of gold or silver or coins or whatever the case might have been. But we do have a little bit of a hint, a little bit of a clue from the next chapter. In chapter 14, verse 14, which we'll be looking at in a few weeks, we find in that incident that Abraham has 318 men that are trained in military exercises. So obviously the number of people under his charge, if you will, it numbers in the hundreds, and it could easily be up into the up into a thousand, perhaps more, depending on what percentage of people under his charge would be military trained. They're three hundred and eighteen, so it's a sizable group. Chapter thirteen, verse seven, and there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. The Canaanites and the Perizzites then dwelt in the land. So, regarding the livestock, the the abundant possessions that they have in the form of livestock. Lot and Abram have so many sheep, cattle, donkeys, whatever the case might be, that they need lots of grass and water, places for their animals to graze. And it seems that the land is not able to support them, at least being so close together. 
This mention of the Canaanites and the Parasites then dwelt in the land. This is two people groups, two of several that will end up being of prominence as the accounts unfold here in Genesis, but also in Exodus, and then especially in the book of Joshua. So we're still 400 years before these groups of people will be judged, the Canaanites and the Perizzites. However, we will be seeing shortly the judgment of the people of Sodom and Gomorrah in a few weeks here. Genesis chapter 13, verse 8 So Abram said to Lot, Please let there be no strife between you and me and between my herdsmen and your herdsmen, for we are brethren. Stuart Briscoe, in his commentary on Genesis, he ends up having a paragraph and a half that I want to read, and I don't normally read this much in quoting from somebody else, but I feel it's beneficial in this instance to quote, it's a paragraph and a half. And so Stuart Briscoe ends up saying, When strife comes along, something needs to be done. And Abram showed what? And how? He took the initiative, directly addressed the issue, appealed to what they had in common, and stated clearly his desire for resolution. Do you and I have problems with others? We sure do. So it pays to heed some of the advice we have here. Wherever people live in close proximity to each other, there will inevitably be friction, whether it is in the family, the business, or the church. Unfortunately, our skills at handling friction do not always match up to our skills in creating problems. Because of this, there is a tendency to leave tensions unresolved, and this often means that they get worse. Some people deny that there is anything wrong, and they settle for a repressed anger which bodes ill for their future. Others admit only too freely that something is wrong, but they admit it to the wrong people, thereby compounding the problem. Their aim is directed more to seeking approval of their own behavior from a supportive person rather than a desire to rectify a bad situation with an offended or offensive person. There has to be the right kind of confrontation if there is to be harmony. One thing I have learned from many years in the ministry is that before you can adequately confront, you must earn the right to do so by proving to the confrontee that you genuinely have his or her interest at heart. Without this, there is probably little that you can achieve except to make matters worse. There must also be a willingness to back down yourself because confrontations that make one person a winner by manufacturing a loser out of the other person rarely achieve the desired result. I think those are wise words by Stuart Briscoe. I think it's wise for us now to contemplate who do we need to approach with an idea to seek resolution to unresolved conflict or tensions. Perhaps now's a good time to pray and ask God, God, what would you have me to do? Perhaps now's a good time to resolve to try again. Maybe you thought I've done it. I've already tried. Try again. Chapter 13, verse 9. Is not the whole land before you? Please separate from me. If you take the left, then I will go to the right. Or if you go to the right, then I will go to the left. You know, this is an interesting snapshot of Abram. He seems to be quite the leader now. He seems to be quite a bit more of a leader, better qualities that we see in him right now than we saw down in Egypt. The timidity that he had before Pharaoh and the boldness and the risk-taking that he has going on now. He's trusting God in this situation. He is willing to extend and put out on a limb there 
the very promises of God, trusting that God can make do, that God can make up, that God can supply, that God can lead and guide and preserve and protect. Matthew Henry has a quote regarding this passage. He says, God will abundantly make up in spiritual peace what we lose for preserving neighborly peace. Chapter 13, verse 10. And Lot lifted his eyes and saw all the plain of the Jordan, that it was well watered everywhere before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt as you go towards Zoar. You know, there's a hill a little bit to the east of Bethel. Standing on top of it, look out and you can see the Jordan Valley. You can see the riverbank as it winds its way through the land. You can see that whole area down there. That area is 1,200 feet below sea level. It's a valley that goes through that land there with the Jordan River traversing through it. It's now a very inhospitable area. It can get to be over 100 degrees Fahrenheit in the summer. During the winter, it's in the 80s. It has hardly any rainfall that it gets during the year. But it seems that this is a picture today that may be a little bit different from what they had back then before the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. It seems from the description we have here at this verse that perhaps it was a much more lush place. Here's another quote from the Archaeological Study Bible. It says, Archaeological evidence has confirmed that the now dry area east and southeast of the Dead Sea enjoyed an ample water supply and was well populated prior to this catastrophe, speaking of the Sodom and Gomorrah catastrophe and the judgment of God upon those cities. Regarding Sodom and Gomorrah, those are actually two of what are often grouped together as a collection of five cities. You had Sodom, Gomorrah, Zoar, Adma, and Zeboim, a group of five cities often called or referred to as the cities of the plain, references in Genesis 13.12, in Genesis 14.2. So of those five cities, where exactly they were located, most of the evidence seems to be pointing to a location down at the south and southeastern areas of the Dead Sea, with some speculation that perhaps some of the city sites are now under the south end of the sea, under the waters there. Some of the modern proposals, though, for these sites, there is a place, modern Safi, all right? So about eight miles north of modern Safi lies the archaeological site of Numeria, and it seems that Numeria shares some consonants of the Arabic name with letters in the Hebrew for Gomorrah. So the Numeria and Gomorrah could actually be related. What we read as Gomorrah could actually be Numeria, eight miles north of modern Safi. There is, regarding Sodom, a proposal that it's Bab-ed-Dra, about 10 miles north of Numeria. And then regarding Safi, it seems that modern Safi may be the location of ancient Zoar. So these are just a few proposals. So for the most part, we're talking an area that is on the southern end or the southeastern end of the Dead Sea. Regarding this passage here, John Hartley has an interesting quote. He says, this account is unusual. And we're speaking now of Abram offering to Lot the land and what Lot does in response. He says, this account is unusual. The reader expects that Lot would have followed the ancient custom of bargaining with Abram before settling on the terms of the separation. Both men were prone to negotiate, as seen in Abram's dealings with the leaders of Hebron to buy the cave of Machpelah in chapter 23, and in Lot's arguing for concessions from the messengers who came to deliver him from Sodom in chapter 19. Moreover, one would expect Lot to defer to Abram, his uncle, and let him make the first choice. 
But instead, what happens? Well, it says in Genesis chapter 13, verse 11, the next verse, Then Lot chose for himself all the plain of Jordan. And Lot journeyed east, and they separated from each other. So it seems that Lot was looking around. Hmm, looks great over there. I, I think in my estimation, that's the best area. I'll take that. I'll take the best area for myself, leaving Abram with the leftovers. But you know what's interesting? The land that he ends up choosing, though it looks like the best from man's evaluation, the irony is that that is the land that's going to end up being destroyed soon in the Sodom and Gomorrah account. That the best choice in man's eyes might be the worst choice if you had the ability to see as God sees. So if Lot knew the fate that was to befall Sodom and Gomorrah, I'm sure it wouldn't appear to be the best choice. Chapter 13, verse 11, Then Lot chose for himself all the plain of Jordan, and Lot journeyed east. Lot journeyed east. Here's an interesting pattern that we've seen before, where somebody sees something, and then they want it, it's forbidden, and there's judgment. Somebody sees something, they want it, it's forbidden, and then there's judgment or destruction. Where have we seen that before? We've seen that in Eve, in the Garden of Eden, haven't we? When she saw the fruit, the forbidden fruit, she wanted it, she took from it, and there was judgment. Where else have we seen that? We've seen that in Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 and 2, where the sons of God saw the daughters of men. Remember that strange story? The sons of God saw the daughters of men and wanted them, right? It was forbidden. That relationship was forbidden, and there was judgment there. Here's another part to point out. Verse 11, Then Lot chose for himself all the plain of Jordan, and Lot journeyed east. This mention of east, have we seen east being mentioned before? When you talk about the directions on the compass, north, south, east, and west, have we seen east? We have. If you remember when Adam and Eve were expelled from the garden, what direction were they sent? They were sent east. Cain, in chapter 4, verse 16, east. Tower of Babel, east. It seems like, as John Walton points out, that every movement away from God thus far in Genesis has been designated as toward the east. And you can look those up in chapter 3, verse 24, chapter 4, verse 16, chapter 11, verse 2. Chapter 13, verse 12, Abram dwelt in the land of Canaan, and Lot dwelt in the cities of the plain, and pitched his tent even as far as Sodom. John Walton, in his commentary on Genesis, says regarding this verse, Abram gave up a chance for the land, eventually to gain the land. Just as David gave up a chance for the crown, eventually to gain the crown. Christ gave up a chance for the kingdoms when Satan offered him all these kingdoms, eventually to gain the kingdom. When preparing ourselves for our role in God's plan or to receive God's blessing, it is often counterproductive to take the easy way to the goal. The wisdom of submission and faith may have to respond to situations where God asks us to let go of the bird in the hand so that we might be prepared for the two in the bush that he has for us. An interesting application from this person from, from our times, Eric Little. Eric Little, representing Scotland, 1924 Paris Olympics. He was slated to run the 100-meter race. But it turns out that the race he was going to run was going to be on a Sunday. The trial heats were scheduled for a Sunday. He refused to participate. He didn't want to profane the Lord's Day. So instead, what happened? He ended up running a race he wasn't as prepared for, the 400-meter race. And in doing so, he not only won that race, he ended up setting a world record in doing that. 
By the way, Chariots of Fire is a movie that has that story. But at 23 years of age, he ends up turning his back on all that fame and glory and becomes a missionary to China. And at 43, he ends up dying as a prisoner of war in a Japanese prison camp in occupied China. There's a person that gave up everything in this life, the fame and the glory that goes along with it, recognizing that this is not the place where we're to store up our treasures. We're to store up our treasures in heaven, where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where our treasure is, there our heart will be also. If we're storing up our treasures here on earth, that's where our heart's going to be, is here on earth. Jesus says we need to store up our treasures in heaven, and our heart will be set upon heaven. We are citizens, and we've looked at this in previous weeks. We're not citizens here of earth. As much as we're citizens in a kingdom whose foundation and maker is the Lord. If we're followers of God, that's where we find our citizenship. Verse 12 also has an interesting thing. If you read verse 12 again, Abram dwelt in the land of Canaan. There's a contrast here in the next phrase, and Lot dwelt in the cities of the plain. It seems that the place that Lot chose was outside the boundary of Canaan. Outside of Canaan, what does this suggest? Well, it suggests, number one, that apparently Lot is not going to turn out to be the beneficiary or the heir to Abram's estate and the promises given to him by God. So for the reader who's going through this for the first time, the reader is going, oh, okay, Lot's out of the picture. Who is it going to be? When God gave those promises to Abram, who's it going to be now? Perhaps we were thinking it might be Lot, but Lot's now removed himself from the picture. He has forfeited the blessings. You'll remember the promise that God gave to Abram. In chapter 12, verse 3, I will bless those who bless you. I will curse him who curses you. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And we saw it. As people are hanging out with Abram, they're getting blessed. But in this case, we have Lot moving away from Abram. What's going to end up happening? It's a sad picture. The blessings are removed. He forfeits the blessings he could have by associating himself with the person to whom God said, I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who curse you. You position yourself with God's people, and you're in a place where God can bestow his blessings upon you. You remove yourself, and what happens? You remove yourself from underneath that umbrella of blessing and protection that God has for his people. Verse 13, But the men of Sodom were exceedingly wicked and sinful against the Lord. My version has exceedingly wicked and sinful against the Lord. Other versions might have something like great sinners or were sinning greatly. Kenneth Matthew ends up pointing out, he says, this is a unique Hebrew phrase which may infer that Sodom's sin was exceptional in human memory, as we would say, one of a kind. Victor P. Hamilton says, the preceding verse placed Sodom outside Canaan, beyond its southernmost border, yet the Sodomites, not living in the promised land, are culpable as sinners against Yahweh. You see, the idea was, back in that day, that the gods of the land were gods of territories, gods of regions. And so if you moved from one territory or one region to another, it was as if you were moving from the jurisdiction of a set of gods to the jurisdiction of a different set of gods. But here we have the clear teaching of the Bible, here and other places. It's obvious that the reign of the one true God is over all. That the God of the Bible, the one true God of the Bible... This is a God who doesn't have parameters or jurisdictions which contain him to a certain area. His rule and reign as creator of the universe is universal. The Old Testament repeatedly affirms that God's dominion and power are universal. 
verse 14. And the Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, actually, I want to pause there for just a moment. The Lord said to Abram, you know, this is obviously not the first time that the Lord has spoken to Abram. And we've seen the Lord speak to other people as we've looked through our Bible. And perhaps you're wondering, what was so special about Abram? How come he got to have God speak to him? And I'd sure like God to speak to me. I mean, God seems to have some sort of special favor or something and that he speaks to Abram in this way. John Walton pointed out, and I think it's fun and interesting and sobering at the same time to realize that between the time of Abram being 75 and 175 when he dies, 100 years there, that God speaks to him about eight times. Eight recorded conversations between God and Abram. Eight times in 100 years. And quoting now from John Walton, he says, What if you were to make an offer to Abram? Which would you prefer, Abram? A brief conversation directly with God eight times in your life during which he spoke whatever was on his mind? Or a book that programmatically shows you what God is like and explains his plans and expectations? God has given us far more revelation and guidance than Abram ever dreamed possible. And then he ends by saying, I'll take the Bible over random theophanies anytime, and I expect Abram would too. Verse 14, And the Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, Lift your eyes now and look from the place where you are. Lift your eyes now. Lift your eyes. Who else lifted their eyes so far in this passage that we've been looking at today? Lot did in verse 10. Lot lifted his eyes and looked and saw a beautiful land over there, the best and he chose it for himself. Here God is saying to Abram, your turn, lift your eyes. Lift your eyes now and look from the place where you are, northward, southward, eastward, and westward. Apparently he's in a place where he can see north and south and east and west. Verse 15, for all the land which you see I give to you and your descendants forever. And then verse 16, and I will make your descendants as the dust of the earth, so that if a man could number the dust of the earth, then your descendants also could be numbered. You know, this is kind of reminiscent to the promise that God gave to Abram earlier. But there's some additional information that we have here than we did back then. Number one, Abram's now included in the promise. Do you remember the original promise? It was that there was to be a land for his descendants. Well, now we have him included in the promise. Another thing that we see here is at the end of verse 15, this aspect of forever. The forever aspect wasn't there before, but now it is. And then the third thing that we see is in verse 16, where he describes the number of his descendants as being like the dust of the earth. Later on, we'll see that he uses similar language to describe his descendants as being comparable to the sand on the seashore or the stars up in the heavens. Those are in chapters 15 and 26. So here we have additional elements. It's as if God is revealing more and more of his plan to Abram as Abram shows himself to be more and more faithful to God. As Abram obeys, God reveals Perhaps it's not too different in our lives. Perhaps when God asks us to do something without giving us all the details in advance, that as we obey, God leads and guides and provides additional details as time goes on. Verse 17, Arise, walk in the land through its length and its width, for I give it to you. 
You know, in Joshua chapter 1, verse 3, we spoke about this a couple weeks ago. Joshua chapter 1, verse 3 says this, Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given you, as I said to Moses. Over in Joshua chapter 1, verse 3, that's God speaking to Joshua as the leader and the representative of the entire people of Israel. Here we have a similar situation. It's as if God is saying, go walk and claim the land. I'm giving you the land. Walk through it and stake your claim. And it seems that Abram steps out. We see in verse 18, Then Abram moved his tent and went and dwelt by the terebinth trees of Mamre, which are in Hebron, and built an altar there to the Lord. These terebinth trees of Mamre, it's about two miles north of Hebron. Hebron has quite a bit of a high elevation. It's 3,040 feet. It's actually the highest city in Palestine, in contrast with the land that Lot chose, which ends up being very low. Hebron and these oak trees, or the terebinth trees of Mamre, are going to be more prominent as the Bible stories unfold as we look through them. But ending this section and ending this passage, John Walton ends up saying this, This is what impressed God about Abraham. He did not simply believe. In taking God at his word, he embraced faith. God is always impressed with faith. We learn here then what impresses God. Do you seek to impress God? Have faith. Our sacrifices of time or resources do not impress God unless they are motivated by faith. And then it is our faith that impresses him, not our sacrifices. And I think we would do well to adopt that understanding as well. To realize that what we do for God, that's not as impressive to him as the faith that serves as the reason for our obedience. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time. We ask God that you would be glorified in our midst. Be glorified in our lives. Be glorified in our speech. Be glorified even in our thoughts. Help us, Lord, to be aligned with you to have our affections and our devotions, to be not in this world, but in your kingdom. Help us, Lord, to step out like Abram, to move in the direction you point us, and then to experience continuing revelation from you as you lead and guide us. We pray that you would find us to be obedient servants. We pray that you would help us, Lord, to make a difference in this world, in this life, this brief time that we have here on earth. And we look forward to the day when we'll get to be with you forever. Thank you, Lord, for making that possible. Thank you, Lord, for making a way. In Jesus' name, amen.